You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We're so glad you're here with us today with my special guest, David Emerson. David is a senior VP at LCG Associates. LCG Associates is an investment consulting firm that focuses on large institutions like pension plans, foundations, endowments, large wealth management firms, and they provide research and advice to help investment teams generate the best risk-adjusted returns. They currently have 46 analysts that help them accomplish this mission, and at Mammoth, We trust LCG to be our most important research partner, really in charge of watching out for our blind spots. And so we are so thankful to have you here today, David, and very excited to just talk about the whole world of consulting and research and everything that relates back to this broad investment front. So thanks for being here. Hey, happy to be here. You know, David, I want to talk about LCG. I want to talk about your research process and your approach. But before we get there, you didn't start thinking, I'm going to go out and be a consultant for a powerhouse research analysis firm. You actually started out as a stockbroker. Is that right? That is correct. When I graduated from Michigan in the mid-90s, I moved out west to be close to my brother always loved the markets. My grandfather was a broker a long time ago. And I said, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And after uh, smiling and dialing on the phone for a couple of years, I realized quickly that wasn't what I wanted to do in my life. I love the markets, but sales, as you'll quickly find out, is not my specialty here. And so it was interesting. I was introduced to another consulting firm by my sister-in-law. Well, she wasn't my sister-in-law at the time, but future sister-in-law. And I had no idea about this industry. It's a very niche industry. And I said, well, you know, I'll do this, but I'm interested in investment banking. I'm going to go back, get my MBA, and that'll be the end of it. But I'll do this to bide the time. And I found it, you know, interesting. I kind of like this area. This is interesting, but I've got a plan. I'm going to stick to the plan. And I went off to business school, did my actually my summer internship in investment banking. And after I wrapped that up and three weeks later, the, the towers came down in 9-11, I realized New York was not the place for me and investment banking was not the place for me either. And said, you know, I really like that consulting thing. I want to give that a try. And I've been doing it ever since. Wow. So Dave, if 9-11 had not occurred, do you think things might have been different? Was that very much a catalyst for you? It was not the catalyst. It was the final straw. And You know, for me, the catalyst was, you know, sitting on the trading desk. I realized it just was not a, I mean, it's a great opportunity and an important role for people, but it wasn't my calling. My calling is I love to be analytical. I love to provide advice. That wasn't going to happen sitting on a trading desk somewhere. And, you know, with 9-11, I think what that cemented was, you know, well, I'm in New York quite a bit. In fact, I'm heading to New York tonight for the rest of the week, living there and just being there, you know, every once in a while are two very different things. And that was kind of the final straw that said, no, this, you know, there's greater works out there saying this is not for me. And consulting is the way to go. At the time that 9-11 happened, were you actually in town? No. So I was getting my MBA, University of Maryland, and 
as I say, I wasn't in New York, but I was in D.C., where also obviously 9-11 was taking place. And I remember I had one class that day actually in fixed income, which is a, when you start doing fixed income math, that gets very interesting. It was a very tough class. And I remember reaching out to the professor that day. You know, we're all just absorbing what's going on, uh, obviously, just a complete change in the landscape of our country. And I remember reaching out to the professor you know, that afternoon. I said, well, are we still having our class tonight? And amazingly, he's no, we're still having our class tonight. And, you know, we all showed up for our class on bond math, all while the world was changing uh, all around us. And I will say we did break because the president, President Bush, gave a uh, speech to the nation that night. We did break for that to listen. But it was, yeah, I think it was indicative of us trying to absorb everything, just the shock that had occurred that day and not knowing how to act. Do we just sit there? Do we carry on with our lives? And ultimately, it was carrying on with our lives. Granted, it all changed and how we went about things. But that was the message that night that we've got to continue to persevere and do what we can and not just sit around and, and wait. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's just a crazy time. I vividly remember sitting in my ugly blue recliner as this was unfolding. <laughs> in front of me as, you know, and at that time I was a college student as well and early business owner, you know, it's vividly etched in my mind that day, still here 20 years later. Absolutely. So, you know, you realize from this, ultimately, you know, you you don't want to be an investment banker. You don't want to be a stock trader and you know, you want to go down this consulting and analysis route. So how did that ultimately bring you to LCG? Yeah, so it was interesting. So when I graduated from business school with my MBA, I moved to North Carolina, where actually a colleague, former colleague from the consulting firm I'd worked at before business school had suggested that I get in touch with them. They were just creating an investment consulting arm as part of a broader banking company. And I like to joke, I was one of the first customers of a uh, research platform called Evestment back in the day. And it was actually through that relationship that they introduced me to LCG when I realized that working for the bank was probably not the right way to go for the direction I was trying to go. And so they introduced me to LCG. I honestly had not heard of LCG at that time and made the introductions. And after a year between business school and and then joined and been there 19 years now, I still think of myself as the new guy. We're firm where people go and they don't leave. We're very proud of that culture. That's fantastic. So tell us a little bit about LCG. So, you know, I've already shared with our audience that you do really high end, high quality investment research and analysis services, but pretend for those listeners that aren't actually in that role as part of a larger investment committee or things of that nature, help them understand kind of the process that these large institutional wealth managers have to go through before they arrive on what things they want to invest in? Well, if I take one step back, I think of the investment consulting world in two ways. There are the large mega shops of the world that cater to you know state pension plan and the like. And then there are the more boutique firms, and we're a boutique firm. And I mention that because our process is about being very hands-on. We believe that you know, the senior folks, myself, my partners are ultimately tasked with running the research process. And 
because of that, it's because we are ultimately making the recommendations to our clients hand in hand. We think of ourselves as extension of their staff. And we want the folks leading those relationships to be the ones running all of the research that goes on. So if I think about the research process to answer your question, it's very detailed. We're, we're meeting with, on average, fifteen to 1,600 manager meetings a year. I will say historically, that was about 20% where we'd be on site. Obviously, with the pandemic, things have changed a little bit. How we do meetings have changed. We, yeah, we do a lot of meetings via Zoom, although we're certainly open for business of managers and, and many have come in to visit with us, but many more have, have been on Zoom these days and other, other media platforms. But we still meet with managers on site. And, and our job is to uncover interesting areas that we're not typically thinking about. I, I know many of your listeners have got a pretty good handle, for instance, on the traditional markets. And certainly we do research in those areas. But in the alternative space, not finding the current large private equity firm, but finding the firm that wants to be the next large private equity firm and growing alongside with them. You know, we were an early investor in private debt. I actually led the charge for that before any of our peers were even thinking about that during the global financial crisis. And today, private debt is, is a staple in a fixed income portfolio. So we like to think of ourselves as being, again, very hands-on. And because of that, being able to find trends, find interesting areas, before the rest of the market does. Don't always do it. We're not always first to the, the game, but that's our job. That's our role is to find, you know, I kind of like the old analogy, don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck's going. That's our job is to find the investment areas and head to that before the puck gets there. And so Dave, I think a lot of people would think, wow, this family office or this institution, you know, they're large enough, they're doing their own research where does a team like yours come in to help augment that? Yeah. So our typical client has five or fewer investment. In fact, some cases they may have one part-time investment person. But even with the larger clients that may have four or five investment people, if you're managing 10 or 15 or $20 billion, you just don't have enough resources to do that. You know, I think of our utility business, for instance. We work with a lot of large utilities who are focused on generating power, not on running pension plans and nuclear decommissioning trusts. And so our job is to supplement what they're doing, give more bodies. You know, we have 46 investment professionals. They can leverage on on all of the scale that we have. And it's really to work hand in hand with these folks. Some of our best relationships, we've got very sophisticated teams that we work with but they just know that they don't have the financial resources, they're not given the budget or whatever it is to fully build out the team like they would. And so, you know, you can think of it as outsourcing part of your team to us. I tell our clients that, you know, think of me as right being right down the hall. You just have to pick up the phone rather than walk there or send me a note. But you get that kind of hand in hand type relationship. And then you have enough bodies to be able to fully vet out the things that you want to do. You look at our operational due diligence. The vast majority of investors out there don't have an operational due diligence team. Certainly peers like ourselves, you know, that's common, but you know, take the utility or take a family office. They're they're not doing that level of operational due diligence and they're they're typically going to outsource that. So you can outsource that to ourselves and others out there. And I think that that is very key because 
if we learned anything, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago with Madoff, operational due diligence is key. And, you know, thankfully, we have not had one of those issues. But I remember a story doing my research. We just won a new client. We inherited the portfolio. They had this hedge fund of funds back in the day in there. And I'm going through the returns. This would have been November of 08. And I'm going through the portfolio. It's all negative. Obviously, you know, at the time, markets were falling around, even though even hedge funds were falling. And there was one line item that was positive. And I don't remember what feeder it was, but I was like, well, what is this? And they said, oh, oh, that's a Bernie Madoff fund, you know. And I said, okay, it's positive. What are they doing? Oh, you know, people said he may be front running and doing some other things, but you know, it, 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 it's not. He's got a special edge. And of course, you know, red flags are going off uh, left and right at this point. And one of that fund of funds hallmarks was we meet with every manager. I said, great. You know, that, that's our philosophy as well. That's why I'm sitting across from you. And I said, so you've met with Bernie. Oh, no, well, no, you can't actually meet with Bernie. And so we couldn't get our redemption in fast enough at that point because it was, this is every violation that, you know, you said you're going to do this and you're not doing it. And of course, you know, it was a month or two later when everything created. Now, obviously, that was just one little part of this broader fund of funds, but it was indicative of what we've seen in the industry of people saying they're doing something, but not actually doing it. And for us, you know, that's thankfully, knock on wood, how we never had these issues because we have a process, we follow that process, and no matter what, whatever we find in that process, we have to be thoughtful about it. And, you know, my philosophy is there is never, in the history of investing, there has never been one investment that you absolutely had to do. Never has been, and there never will be. And because of that, we're more than happy to walk away in some of the greatest investments because operationally it didn't make sense. And for our listeners, Dave, when you talk about operational due diligence, for some of our listeners, that will be a new term. Tell us what you mean by that. So especially in the alternative space, uh, if you're in a limited partnership, for instance, there are many service providers. You know, there could be a administrator, there's a lawyer, maybe multiple lawyers, there's an accountant, tax advisor, all of these different parties. Now, one of the things that you learned from these fraud situations is you actually have to verify these service providers. And most service providers are more than happy to respond to you. And when I say verify, it's not take a, the manager gives you a printed letter from XYZ service provider and you say, oh, okay, well, that's good. It's actually reaching out to the service provider and saying, can you, in writing, agree that you actually provide these services to you know, ABC manager. And it's interesting, almost all service providers are more than happy to do it. The one area where we've had issues are with the accountants, actually. And we had to work extra hard, my team has, to be able to get that. But that's key. You, you want to know that the service providers are actually providing the services. Had you done that in, you know, with Madoff and some of the other fraud situations, I remember Madoff, I think the accountant was no one had ever heard of and working in a strip mall in Long Island, right? That's a red flag. And you want to know, not to say it has to be a big four accountant or, you know, a top legal firm, but you want to know who the parties are and, you know, who else they're working with, et cetera, to the extent that you can. 
you want to do background checks. We do fairly extensive background checks. I remember it was a large asset management firm where we came across the CFO had actually gotten in some trouble as a late teenager, we'll call it. And we were trying to figure out exactly what was going on. And I remember calling my contact, the firm, and, and just, you know, what, what's this all? Oh, that you've got the wrong person. And 10 minutes later, no, we, <laughs> we've got the right person. And turns out he got in a fight in the college party. That was fine. You know, we understood what the situation was and we moved on. But there were other situations. I remember we'd been asked to look at one manager and by a client. And, you know, I asked the manager point blank. I'm on site with him. Ask him point blank. Am I going to find anything when I do my background check? Nope, nope, absolutely not. And then, you know, of course, we found that he'd been dealing cocaine 30 years prior when he was in college. That's a problem. Now, that would have been a problem had he been up front with me, but it was also a problem that he lied. I mean, you know, either one was a no-go. But, you know, my philosophy, number one, is be upfront. If you're a manager, just be honest. And, you know, many things are explainable. You got a speeding ticket? Oh, okay. You got 20 speeding tickets? Then we need to have a conversation. You know, things like that, because the reality is we're going to find it. And we don't have anything proprietary in our system. It's just we actually do the work. Back to what I was saying, we do the work and you find these things because once it's public record, it's out there. And there is no such thing as expunging it from the public record. I know I'm not a lawyer, but lawyers talk about that. We find it. And we just want to know the people that we're working with. And so when I talk about operational due diligence, there's more to it. There's reviewing the documents, understanding the fees that are being paid, not just the management fee, but the operational fees, all the different fees that they can charge. Going through that, understanding the key man, you put all that together and you really have a good mosaic of the people that you're working with. Because when you commit to a private equity firm or a private debt fund or what have you, you're making a long-term commitment. You're getting married to that fund, if you will. And there isn't an easy divorce out of that if something goes wrong. And so you want to know the people that you're working with. Forget about the investment side. That's important. You're going to get, you're already assuming that's a great investment, but operationally, it's got to be key. So Dave, that makes it sound like operational due diligence is part of a, maybe a larger total due diligence process. If you had to break it down into kind of the largest steps, operational due diligence being one of those, and it sounds like there's a different step or series of steps prior to that, how would you break that process down? Yeah, you know, every situation is different, but it starts with the investment. We, we're looking for interesting investments. And so I'd say if you're looking at a funnel, that, you know, we're, that's where we're looking at the vast majority of firms is, is this an interesting investment? Is the time right? Is this the right strategy? And is this the right firm? And then as we narrow that down and say, yep, this is the right firm, love the strategy, time is right then it's the operational due diligence. And that's really the final step. And for instance, for our side, our ODD team or operational due diligence team, they report to myself and my partners in what we call our risk management committee. And so they have to make the case that operationally, this manager is suitable for our clients, that they follow best practices and understand any potential issues there. And then our committee ultimately deems a manager suitable or, or not suitable. But once a manager is deemed suitable, then we can use those managers for our clients. 
And, you know, we may have to make certain disclosures or what have you, but that is really the final step. So if you think of that funnel chart, every step is important, but a lot of the legwork is starting on the investment side. And then our operational team kind of brings it home and says, yes, we can move forward with this. I love that. And then you really started to hit on the scale that I think you are able to achieve at LCG. That's so important to these institutional investment managers that a lot of times when they're coming to you to say, hey, we're, you know, we're thinking about such and such fund or such and such manager, a lot of times from what I've seen, you guys have already done due diligence on that fund or that firm. And so you're able to very quickly help them. Whereas if they were trying to do this with their own team, they have to start at ground zero on every single investment they're considering Whereas in your case, yep. you've already done it for one manager and that same research is applicable for the next 15, 20. So it's really scalable. I would agree with you. You know, I think one of the unique things about our firm, not to say it's fully unique, but just my experience in the industry is we don't have an approved list. So we have managers that we're following, actively following that we like. And to your point, chances are you bring us a manager. We're familiar with that manager. We may have a deep relationship. We may have a very shallow relationship. But to the scale point, and I've always told my clients, I don't have a lock on great ideas. I think we have some good ideas, but you're going to have great ideas as well. You know, when they bring us something, there are times that we have to basically drop everything, get on a plane and go meet with those managers. And I remember a situation where we were meeting with one manager or the client that had given us this manager and they were closing final close uh, in, I think it was 10 days. And I needed to get on the plane, get to New York, do our diligence. I remember my ODD team was not very pleased with me, but you know, it happens. You know, it, obviously, we, we love more time and generally have a lot more time. But that scale comes home to roost because you know, we can easily drop what we need to do in those situations and be able to augment your team and get everything done. Again, it doesn't happen most of the time. We, we have a lot more time, but those special situations, we know that those things are critical and we can do that. You know, the other interesting thing, you know, I go back to that comment that we're a boutique. I love that because we're not so large that we're forced into the large managers out there. Granted, there's a lot of good, really good large managers out there, but we're not forced into that more. We can go into smaller managers because... You know, we're writing smaller tickets at the end of the day. We're not too large of a percentage of a manager's fund. And that to us is where we find some of the most interesting ideas. But for the really small organization, for that family office or wealth management firm or even a pension, we're large enough that we can scale and that we can get nice, in many cases, get some fee reductions because we're you know aggregating assets together. So I like to think of it as a Goldilocks scenario. You know, we're not too big, we're not too small, we're just the right size. And that has really worked well. And I think that's where a lot of the institutions say, hmm, okay, LCG's got a you know a good size research bench, but they're large enough to be able to get into the right managers, but not too large and get into some interesting uh, ideas. Yeah. One of the things I think I heard you say there, Dave, that I really like is that by not having an actual approve list, even though with a lot of these firms or managers, you've already done this operational due diligence. But I think what I heard is for each investment team, 
you're not just going to take that diligence you've already done. You're also going to look at that investment team's mandate and what they're trying to accomplish with a fresh lens, fresh eyes to say, okay, we have a head start with this due diligence process, but now we need to take it and customize it to that specific manager to make sure it's still the right fit. And I think that's really incredible, far better than just a blanket approve list. It's like, now we've got our head start. We know it looks good in this scenario, but now we're actually going to look and say, does it look right in your specific scenario? And that's really powerful. It's a big difference. So thanks for helping me understand that. Yep. So Dave, the last thing I wanted to go into before we get into our wrap up here is I just wanted to walk through an example and and you guys work in so many different areas of the investment spectrum, whether it's private equity or real estate or fixed income or on and on and on. I just wanted to pick one of those asset classes and just kind of talk through, you said at the first part of the process, it's more looking at, is there a strategic fit in the fund? Is the thesis interesting? And maybe talk about what the front end of that diligence looks like. And because you've spent so much time in the private debt space, and here we are sitting in you know, May of 2022, and private debt is a really important space for portfolio consideration. I'd love to just pick on that asset class and say, you know, prior to getting into the operational due diligence, if you are looking at a private debt fund, what are some of the things that are going to be important to you on the front end in their thesis and their firm, things of that nature? Yeah, it's it's a. I was going to go to private debt. I know that through and through. So I led our process in private debt research since we really identified it as something to look at going back to 2006. And you know, so this is pre global financial crisis. No one really knew what private debt was. Most of the structures back then were hedge funds, and it, it just did not make sense from a structural standpoint because the, the asset liability mismatch was not good. Global financial crisis happens and the world changed. You know, the banking world changed. Smaller banks were no longer incentivized to lend to some of these small and medium-sized enterprises. And so we started to see this trend of a handful of managers. Some had had been doing this pre-financial crisis in a drawdown fund, but it was a very, I mean, I think literally there were probably like 15 or 20 firms in in the entire universe that were doing it. And, you know, we started to see these more of these drawdown funds come out. And, you know, at the time it was direct lending, senior top of the capital structure to call it 25 to $100 million EBITDA size companies. And it was a pretty straightforward trade. You know, I I used to joke because there was such a dearth of capital back then that, you know, if you had a pulse, you could get a loan and probably get the credit right at that time. But you joke it's 2022. I remember saying, well, by 2012, this is not going to be an asset class. This is just a flash in the pan. You know, the Fed's going to get it all figured out and the Treasury and everything and banks are going to be able to lend again because that's what banks do. You know, they lend. They make That's how they make their money. And I was wrong. And that's okay. I admit when I'm wrong, this truly is an asset class. And it really has. And of course, my peers in the industry quickly latched on after a couple of years, said, yep, this really is an asset class. And what's changed is because all of this realization that it's an asset class, all this money has come in. 
And, you know, so that initial trade, I can get 10% lending to at the top of the capital structure, that trade's been long gone. And, and so the space in, in the asset class has truly evolved to it's no longer direct lending, it's private credit, private debt, whatever you want to call it. It's top of the capital structure. It's junior debt, Unitranche. We even lump MEZ in there, although I fight with our PE folks for the MEZ mandates. It's going into Europe. It's being opportunistic. It is, oh, there's a little bit of hair on that. There's some stress. There's some distress. There's a whole wide range of returns and risk profiles. It's asset-backed lending. It's cash flow lending. It's non-sponsor. It's sponsor. All these different things. And so to the point of, you know, what makes the right asset allocate or right asset allocation decision within the private debt space, within the overall income portfolio, there is no right answer. And so it's working with the clients and saying, okay, is yield the most important thing? How do you feel about defaults? You know, no one likes them, but you can get more yield if you're taking a little bit more risk or we want no default situations. We'd love to be in some rescue situations and think of this as more equity-like returns. Or no, we want to be with the largest companies and just think of this truly as a replacement to our fixed income, traditional fixed income, which you know, I think about today or I think about you know, five years ago when we were in rising interest rate environments. My goodness, this is when private credit does really well because you've got the floating rate aspects associated with that. You've got a much better yield having this in a portfolio can be a nice enhancement to certainly what's right now a very difficult bond market has been. And so it's all these pieces together that we say, you know, there is no one answer that you have to invest in this manager, that manager, and that one. It really is going to come down to specifics of what you're trying to accomplish from that. And then from that, building a portfolio around Number one, the strategies that make the most sense. But number two, who's in market at that time? Because, you know, they're raising every couple of years in in many cases. And so there's not going to be that one perfect manager because they may have just closed their fund and not raising for another three years. So we have to know who's in the space. My team is tasked with making sure we know who's raising, who's about to be raising, who's going to be raising next year and being ready to pounce on that and get our allocations in when the time comes. Wow. There's just so much to cover there. And I'm just so thankful from Mammoth's perspective to have your team of 46 analysts really watching our blind spots. It's so important to us. We really believe everybody has those blind spots. And to know that we have this truly independent research partner, that's their job is just to watch our backs and watch our blind spots. It's just so, so important to us. We absolutely love it. Well, Dave, this has just been tremendously helpful. And now we get to move into my favorite part of the show where I actually get to ask you two questions. So the first question is the question everyone wants to know. And what it really is, is the question that I want to know. And then our last question will be the right people to get in touch with you and how they should do it. And so the question that I want to know, you mentioned mezzanine financing or mez debt, mezzanine debt. And it's one of those terms in the financial industry, we hear it all the time. And yet I feel like very few people actually know what it means. So can you share with me, share with our listeners, when you talk about mezzanine financing or mezzanine debt, what actually is that? Yeah. Well, you can think of it in very simplistic terms. It's somewhere between what the bank can provide you or a senior lender can provide you and your equity in a company. And 
So a lot of small and medium-sized enterprises, you know, they may have a bank revolver in place. They may have a, a senior loan or a tranche loan in place with a private lender. Uh, obviously, they have their equity in the company, but they're looking to do some expansion, the multiples in place on their senior facility or, you know, about where they should be. Banks and lenders have, you know, I joke they have strict guidelines as to what the leverage should be, although I think that's all evolved over the last 10 years, not as strict as you'd like. And they need more financing. And so it comes into well, if there is something goes wrong with the company and they can't necessarily repay, who takes the first loss? Well, it's the mezzanine holder. It's not the senior. They're going to be at the top of the structure. And so mezzanine debt is, it's debt. You got to pay it back. You're going to pay a higher return or higher interest rate on that because it's junior debt and it has the first risk of loss. And uh, in many cases, it comes with equity kickers as part of it. And so that means that the mezzanine debt holder may get some equity warrants as part of this and the opportunity to take a small equity stake in the company. In a bankruptcy situation, good chance they may be wiped out. Now, and that's why they're getting that higher interest rate for compensation. And so that's the very simplistic take. I know my friends in the mezzanine debt industry are probably chuckling at this point because it's a lot more nuanced. But from the high level, think of it as it's in between the mezzanine as like a floor. It's in between that senior tranche and the equity holding. It's not as simplistic as that. There's many different tranches typically in a capital stack, but that's the simplistic answer. No, that's really helpful. Makes a lot of sense and appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, now we go into the real question that everyone wants to know, Dave, and especially any of those listeners that may be wealth managers inside of these large institutions. And hopefully listening in today, they realize, wow, the boutique level of care that LCG is able to provide to us could really augment our research and analysis team in a very positive manner. And so if somebody listening in is hearing that and saying, gosh, we want to push into that more, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Absolutely. Certainly, you can go to our website, lcgassociates.com. There's a contact us feature on there. Our company is headquartered in Atlanta, which is where the vast majority of folks are. I'm actually in Seattle and we have some folks in Dallas. And so you can reach any of us through that. Uh, we're always happy to, uh, uh, to chat and talk about what you guys are looking at and see if we can be of help or not. We're very easy to chat with about those things. So first line would be just reach out to us through the website. That's fantastic. And I'm looking at it right now, Dave, and it looks like if somebody goes to lcgassociates.com and we will put that link in our show notes, whether you're listening on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, we'll put that link. But if you click on that contact us location, it will show you all three of their offices in Atlanta, Dallas, and Seattle. And you can call the one that is closest to you. And you're going to get great team members uh, on the phone with you. And again, we're just very thankful at Mammoth to have LCG watching our blind spots. Uh, they're one of our most important partners. So very thankful to have them in the mix. And Dave, this has just been absolutely tremendous. Thanks for joining us today. And listeners, thank you so much for being here. And we look forward to seeing you next week right back here on Beyond the Ordinary. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.com.